and WCST or West Virginia Radio Corporation. Here we go! Welcome to Panhandle Live on WEPM and WCST, the Panhandle News Network. Panhandle Live is brought to you by Sutton and Janelle Attorneys at Law. Visit their new location at 224 West King Street, Martinsburg, and online at suttonandjanelle.com. Here are your hosts, Jordan Nicewarner and Marsha Kavalik. Sadly, this morning, host singular, not hosts, plural. Jordan Nicewarner has the day off. So um, today, your task, listener, is to listen for the Easter egg, which is how will I screw it up today when I'm operating the board? Um, I'm Marsha Kavalik in. Uh, Solo, Jordan Nicewinner, as I said, has the day off, but our fun here is sponsored by Sutton and Janelle. They're your full-service law firm serving West Virginia and Maryland, helping individuals, families, businesses with all their legal needs, family law, criminal defense, DUI, personal injury, mediation. They provide legal counsel tailored to your needs, 70-plus years of collective legal experience. You can visit them online at suttonandjanelle.com or in their new historic location in downtown Martinsburg at 224 West King Street. I'm going to ask our next guest how many of those 70-plus years he contributes as we're joined in studio by Sutton and Janelle defense attorney Brad Wright. Welcome in. Thank you, Marcia. It's good to be here. And uh, I, I hear you occasionally get to listen into the program, so how are we doing? You're doing well, and that was a nice intro there. We certainly appreciate that. We appreciate your sponsorship of local radio. I don't know if you did this or not, but it sounds like you you did. I grew up with local radio. It was kind of like the the bookend of my day. Um, you know, we I grew up in Southern West Virginia, so it was always the Beckley Station with uh, we heard gospel music, we heard the news at the top of the hour, all that stuff, and it was just kind of our companion through the day. Sure, growing up, I can remember uh, being at my grandparents' house during the summer. You know, the the months where we were making hay. And I can distinctly remember that morning news jingle on the radio uh, when my grandparents would certainly be up before I was listening to the <laughs> early morning news. And they did listen to 1340. Uh, and a lot of those familiar voices uh, carried on for a number of years as we were growing up. That is so awesome. Well, we're, we're turning 75 this year. We just had our 75th birthday. So we're proud to be part of the Panhandle story. And thank you for supporting local radio, um, you know, all of uh, Sutton and Janelle, of course. So uh, it's a little awkward, this conversation, because, um, hold on, let me move. I'm going to move a mic so I can see better. It's a little awkward because you're a defense attorney and um, apparently had a, a, a background in law enforcement. How does one make the transition from law enforcement to defending folks? So, so I think that story begins in third grade, actually. Wow, um, way back. Way back. Uh, I was, was in third grade. Um, we watched 12 Angry Men. And I have a notebook that my parents saved. And in that notebook, it says, my name is Bradley Wright, and I'm an attorney. Wow. Uh, so, you know, it's been a number of years ago, obviously. Um, I got into law enforcement in 2003, started here in uh, Berkeley County with the Sheriff's Department, um, went to the State Police Academy um, from June until September of 2003, worked here for a couple of years. Uh, life then took me to Montegalia County, where I worked um, in law enforcement uh, while I was in school uh, doing my undergraduate. So uh, I worked uh, up through the ranks, corporal, then to sergeant, was a canine handler, um, and then you know, the day came that, uh, you know, as life happens, I said, well, if I'm going to go to law school, I need to do it now. Um, I can't wait any longer. So I was, uh, I think, 34 years old 
and uh, was studying for the LSAT late at night Wow! Uh, while everyone else was asleep and uh, took the LSAT, applied to a bunch of law schools, uh, got into WVU with um, some scholarship money. And uh, that, that's, that's how I got into law school. How I became a defense attorney, I think, is all about meeting people. Um, one of my professors was a former law enforcement officer, um, and he was great friends with a federal public defender in Clarksburg named Richard Walker. And that relationship led me to do an internship with the Federal Public Defender's Office in Clarksburg. And from there, uh, I was awarded a fellowship to come out here to Martinsburg to work in the State Public Defender Office over the summer. And then post-graduation, uh, I also um, had the opportunity to come out here for a postgraduate fellowship to work for the State Public Defender Office. So I think the way I ended up in the criminal defense role was just sort of, that's the path that my law school uh, experience took me in. Did you have misconceptions about defense? Because I, I think a lot of us just knee-jerk think, well, you know, if they've been arrested, they're probably guilty. Why would anyone want to defend them? And that, that's a good question. I think um, it's, it's difficult sometimes because when we see stories about someone being arrested, we just see such a small part of the actual case itself. Um, even as attorneys, we do not get the evidence or the discovery in a case uh, for quite some time. In a, in a misdemeanor case, it might be a month, maybe two months after we get the case. In a felony case, it could be six to eight months, depending on how the case tracks. Um, so, you know, there are times when we look at the initial criminal complaint and uh, everything seems very well put together. Um, but when you start looking at the video or perhaps the reason for the stop, you know, there are things that develop in a case that, that might tend to prove that the person is either factually innocent or that perhaps they're guilty of a charge that's less than or different than the charge that was originally made against them. And the way our court system is set up, it is it is incumbent upon the prosecution to prove that that person is guilty of the of the crimes that they that, that person has been charged with. So then it becomes part of the whole system that they need to have someone to represent them in such a way that would give them that fair representation, the best shot possible. Absolutely. And, and, you know, a big deal is made out of the presumption of innocence. When, when a case goes to trial, which very few cases do, but when a case goes to trial, the jury is reminded of that multiple times uh, by both defense counsel and the judge. Um, it's very important to understand that, um, just because a charge has been filed against an individual, um, they have a presumption of innocence. And that presumption remains with them throughout the entire case up until the point that they either admit their guilt or a jury finds them guilty using the, the standard of beyond a reasonable doubt. So what is the difference between innocent and not guilty? Because you and I were having this conversation a little bit before the mics went on. You know, I know law enforcement around here is, is top notch. We have some really good investigators and um, most of the, the vast majority of the time, it seems as though if someone is arrested, they're going to get, you know, charged and, and convicted of something and they may have done the crime. But what, what is the difference between someone being found not guilty as opposed to being just innocent of the charges? Right. So if a case goes to trial, the jury is tasked with weighing the evidence, considering the truthfulness of the witnesses uh, who they believe, who they do not believe. And at the end of their deliberations, they need to decide whether the proof that's been presented by the state or by the 
by the charging, uh, you know, whether it be the city um, and city court or the state of West Virginia and magistrate and circuit courts, they're weighing whether there's proof beyond a reasonable doubt. And when we ask what is reasonable doubt, it's, it's sufficient doubt that would make a reasonable person hesitate in a moment of importance. So if that evidence does not meet that standard, the jury shall find the person not guilty. That's not the same as saying we do not believe the person committed the crime. It's the jury saying we do not believe the evidence presented proves that they committed the crime. So you morphed into becoming a defense attorney. What were some of the most surprising things you found out about the folks that you were representing? Or what what would surprise the listener to know about some of these folks? So I think um, I think that the story behind the person is important. Um, a lot of times you'll see charges for drug possession. Um, but what what we don't see on the surface or in the charging documents is that um, the person struggles with drug addiction. Um, we don't see on the larceny cases the person uh, may be committing a larceny to support a drug addiction. Um, and a big part of our job, a lot of what we do is to get people into rehab or to get people into treatment. And that's present in a lot of our cases, whether it's here at Mountaineer Recovery Center in Martinsburg or whether it's a six to nine month inpatient treatment program that's out of this area and a, sort of away from the environment um, that they've been living in. I think that would surprise some people because they would think that maybe your job would just be to get the person off the charges. No, not at all. Uh, in, in domestic cases involving family members, there there's uh, uh, community alternatives to violence here in Martinsburg. That's a 32-week course, uh, meets once per week. Um, a lot of our clients are involved in domestics attending those classes. Um, our, our, our clients who are charged with DUI are taking DUI education classes. They may have interlock installed in their vehicles. Um, a lot of what we do is putting people in contact with resources to help avoid being in the same situation again. So do those programs work? What's they, the re- recidivism rate? So I don't have those numbers in front of me, but I can tell you that um, we do not have a lot of repeat customers. Um, I think when we when we look at a criminal history of a client, you know, it may tend to show that they've been in trouble multiple times over over the course of their life. Um, but as as far as the domestic cases go, um, I, I think we see very few of those returning. Um, in in terms of drug possession, um, you know, the the simple possession uh, cases you may see um, more than once. Um, but just in general, I would say that overall, if, if you look at our entire uh, client list, um, we don't see a lot of these people multiple times. We're speaking this morning with Brad Wright. He is a defense attorney with Sutton and Janelle. So I wanted to ask you, because I think I prefaced this when I started talking to you this morning, you know, you're kind of one of those guys we never want to have to call. Um, but sometimes that happens. I, I know um, looking at some of the, the um mom and dad pages for the universities that my students have attended. Sometimes students, for example, will be off at school and despite being raised better, they'll get into some sort of trouble, weapon in the vehicle, drunk driving, something that they've been pulled over for or charged on campus. Um, what what can a parent do in a situation like that besides just panic and, and question every decision he or she has made? 
Sure. I think, I mean, I'm an attorney, so I'm going to tell you, call an attorney. And, and the reason I say that is because um, there are valuable rights that could expire if you do not start acting right away. Really? Um, like what kind of timeline are we talking about? So we're talking about 20 days and 30 days. Um, if there's a refusal of a secondary breath test, you have a certain amount of time to request a hearing to determine whether that refusal actually occurred. Um, if there's a refusal on a secondary breath test on a DUI, it could result in a one-year suspension of your driver's license. Um, the other right that you give up is your right to a jury trial. Um, so if you do not request that in writing within 30 days of your initial appearance, basically the day that you're arrested or, or maybe the next morning, um, you give up that right. So your case would then be heard in front of a judge if it goes to trial rather than a jury. So there are valuable rights that, that the clock starts ticking the moment that the arraignment occurs or the initial appearance occurs. In your experience, because I know, you know, we send our kids away to college and we want them to function as adults. Is a little bit of that family intervention appropriate? I mean, can, should mom and dad make that call? Should the, the defendant make the call to you guys? So, so I think um, mom and dad often make the call because they I think you know, mom and dad a lot of times paying the bill. So they want to get a feel for the attorney. They want to talk to them. And it's not uncommon to have parents come into the office with their child. And a lot of times our conversation with them initially um, involves everyone, mom, dad, um, child. As the case progresses, there may be a time where we ask mom and dad to step out of the room where we have an attorney-client conversation with the accused. Who and, is often very much an adult. Right, right. And it's important um, Sometimes you get a different story when mom and dad are not in the room. And sometimes sometimes you need to hear that because you don't want to find it out later in court that that information has been withheld from you because they didn't want mom or dad to hear about it. They didn't it. want to embarrass their parents. Right, yeah. right. So wow. I mean, you need to hear that before you get to court because um, you don't want to walk in with this uh, you know shiny image of, a client only to find out in court that all of this other stuff exists that you didn't know. About. And there's documentation to, to back that right, up. Right, right. So we're, we're um, sliding into the holiday season and, uh, you know, a lot of folks will be going to work parties and all of that. One of the traps that they can fall into is not really understanding that they've had a little too much to drink. Maybe they get behind the wheel. Um, obviously, you know, as, as you mentioned, if you get into trouble, call the attorney, but before any of that happens, of course, I'm sure you would say you just don't drink and drive. But should a person, when he or she is pulled over, um, go ahead and do a breathalyzer? Should they do th What are their rights there? So, so as, as far as breath tests are concerned or field sobriety tests are concerned, in the state of West Virginia, you're not required by law to participate in a roadside field sobriety test or a preliminary breath test, and that's a handheld breath test that is typically given on the roadside. However, a police officer, based on their observation, maybe it's the way the vehicle was being operated, maybe it's the odor of alcohol in someone's breath, maybe their eyes are bloodshot or appear glassy, they could use those clues to make the arrest, even without the field sobriety test. Um, once you're at the police department, the secondary breath test, that's the larger more complicated, you know, technologically advanced machine. Can stand up in yeah. court. Yeah, and that's certainly admissible in court. That test is different. 
um, a refusal of that breath test would result in a one-year suspension of your driver's license. If you submit to that breath test and your breath, your, your alcohol uh, volume is less than a certain number and it's your first offense, then you would be eligible for a DUI deferral program. If it's over that 150, 0.150 number, that could lead to the charge uh, being filed as what's called an aggravated DUI, which has a little stiffer penalty than the regular DUI first. Brad Wright is our guest, and I, I, you probably had some things you wanted to talk about. I have so many questions. So you're defending folks who've gotten into trouble with the law. You're, you're trying to you know, lessen the, the amount of their guilt in the eyes of the law or get them a uh, you know, lesser degree of incarceration if they're, char- if they're found guilty. But when, you, when you're thinking about things like DUI or minor offenses, how possible is it for folks to get any of these things expunged? And is that something that you guys deal with, or is that something that is better left to the legislators? So there are certain offenses that are eligible for expungement. And depending on whether it's a misdemeanor or a felony, that would depend on how long you have to wait to file for the expungement. Um, typically, that clock starts when the case is over and you're no longer under supervision by the court. So if you're on probation, the clock would start at the end of probation. If you're incarcerated, it would start when you're released from incarceration. Um, We do handle expungements. In fact, Mark Sutton does a lot of them. Um, DUIs, generally speaking, are not expungible um, unless it falls under that DUI deferral program for the first offense under the .150 breath alcohol reading once you do the interlock, the DUI education classes, uh, once that's over, one year later, you can move to have that charge expunged. And and by expunged, does that mean it's like it never happened? That's correct. There it's, are some states where it d- never goes away, right? I, I would assume so, but I'm not I'm not 100% on all of the expungement laws. But in in West Virginia, it's as if the crime did not occur. Now that I don't believe would prevent an employer from asking the question. Have you ever been charged with an offense, including offenses that were expunged? And the person should answer? Truthfully. I mean, I I think, especially if you're applying for a job where, I would assume, like in a a government job or something like that, where although those records are sealed, Google still exists, news reports still exist, and we can't expunge WEPM's broadcast. So if you report in the morning that, an individual has been arrested, um, an expungement in court does not make that go away. And, and as an attorney, we do not have the power or, or the mechanism to have news stories removed from online. And, th- and you know, those exist basically forever. Brad Wright from Sutton and Janelle, I wish I could keep you longer. Promise you'll come back in because this is just fascinating. I will. So, and thanks for listening. And thank you, uh, Sutton and Janelle, for supporting us here on WEPM. And uh, definitely want to talk to you more Uh, like when Jordan's back at the beginning of the year, because this is just fascinating. Thank you so much. Thank you. All right. You're listening to Panhandle Live, brought to you by Sutton and Janelle. Welcome back to Panhandle Live. Here are your hosts, Jordan Warner and Marsha Kavalik. Welcome back into Panhandle Live, the Tuesday edition. Marsha Kavalik here. Jordan Nice Warner's taking the day off, so unfortunately it's not the dynamic duo, but uh, 
But here we are holding down the fort. Uh, if you missed the first segment, it was Brad Wright from Sutton and Janelle. Really interesting conversation. I know there are a lot of efforts uh, in the West Virginia legislature uh, pretty frequently to, to uh, move toward expungement or, uh, you know, lesser sentencing on some minor offenses. And always interesting to talk to someone who really gets to know folks who have uh, gotten on that side of the law, um, sometimes because of addiction and and that uh, to see if you know that you know what's out there for rehab or getting their records expunged. Panhandle Live is brought to you today by Sutton and Janelle. They're your full service law firm serving West Virginia and Maryland, helping individuals, families, businesses with all their legal needs. Family law, criminal defense, DUI, personal injury, mediation. They provide legal counsel tailored to your needs. Seventy plus years of combined legal experience. You can visit them at their new historic location in downtown Martinsburg at 224 West King Street or online at suttonandjanelle.com. So this morning on our schedule, we have a plan to have Samuel Rock uh, from Battle Buddy Response Team uh, call in and give us an update of how they how their um, efforts went in Kentucky over the weekend. Uh, it was really interesting to see on Facebook how they, um, you know, did the caravan. They had multiple vehicles, lots of heavy equipment, lots of medical supplies, and uh, I was really interested to see, um, you know, what what they found when they got down there. So hopefully he'll be able to give us a call in uh, during the segment to uh, to give us an update on that. Uh, they had uh, heavy machines, lifting equipment. Medical supplies, as I said, water, lots of uh, supplies that folks had donated. And it was interesting to see how the community, as it always does, rallied around to support them and their efforts. Because, you know, a lot of us are more comfortable getting, uh, you know, a giant pack of water and donating it than actually going to, um, you know, a, an area ravaged by a natural disaster and, uh, you know, trying to actual actually move stuff around or try to find folks under the rubble or um, cut down trees, as he said, all of those things that uh, those good folks did. If you uh, want to learn more about Battle Buddy Response Team, you can go online. They've got a, a very active social media. I know I catch them on Facebook. I think they're on TikTok and probably Instagram and, and all of those as well. So uh, hopefully they'll be able to call in. If not, um, we'll just understand they probably got called somewhere because I remember the last time uh, we had them on Panhandle Live, uh, they were actually calling us on the way to respond to someone uh, up in Hagerstown. They were actually on a call. And when we've talked to Samuel Rock from Battle Buddies, one of the things he has mentioned is that you know if they get a call, sometimes they don't have the funding for it at that moment. And um, sometimes he'll have to go and get the funding uh, before he is able to to get on a flight or try to, um, uh, you know, get supplies together or a team together. Uh, so hopefully they'll, you know, through the publicity of being on shows like ours and their own social media and uh, the article that we put on Metro News, they will be able to uh, have more of a secure funding source. I know one of the last things that we talked about with them was that they were looking for a warehouse space and um, very specific warehouse space with lots of parking and also areas where they could do meetings and things like that. Well, uh, when he was on with us most recently ahead of that deployment down to Kentucky, Samuel Rock told us that he um, they had secured a, a rental, I believe it was for a year, and they got a pretty good deal because the, the um, landlord, the landlady, 
um, believed in what they were doing. So um, really good stuff that they're doing. Really appreciate um, all the things that, that they're doing for our community as well. Wanted to bring you a story. I'm working on a, a package for uh, Metro News on this so that we can bring it to more of a statewide audience. But um, we had on the show last week uh, George Swartwood, uh, chief of the Martinsburg Police Detachment. He was talking about a multi jurisdictional effort to uh, track down the folks who were responsible for dragging an officer during a traffic stop. And um, one of the things that that he mentioned was how quick all of the area law enforcement was to, you know, kind of wrap their arms around this. And not only that, but to, to deploy and uh, to go out and try to um, to find out who this was, get them off the street. And the good news is that the patrolman in question um, who, who was injured is, um, is on the road to recovery, but it could have gone so much worse. So I'm going to bring this uh, conversation back to you. This is uh, Chief George Swartwood. The officer that I have injured uh, right now is uh, Patrolman Ethan Anderson. And I, I showed you, uh, mm-hmm. you guys, uh, his picture. picture. That was Sunday morning. And yeah. It was very late, very early Sunday morning, about 1 a.m. when this occurrence happened. Uh, he unfortunately, uh, he had gone to a, a vehicle stop and uh, was a suspicious vehicle. And uh, during the course of the investigation with the vehicle and the occupants of the vehicle, it was discovered that there was a warrant uh, for uh, Mr. Fletcher, uh, the driver. And during that, when he told him, you know, trying to effect an arrest, uh, he was not compliant. And unfortunately, when he took off in the vehicle, he was dragging my uh, patrolman along with him and he was alongside of it. And uh, I'm not going to go into too many details because that case is still pending. But uh, when he did, when he was able to break free uh, from that, he suffered a lot of injuries uh, on impact, a lot of facial abrasions, both eyes. Wow. Uh, closed and uh, when I talked to him he said boss you know I, I got bruises I didn't even know I could have bruises he said I'm so stiff but fortunately uh, he is doing well he is on the mend and uh, he's off right now but you know thank God that he didn't go under the vehicle right. or get his legs run over Ooh. so yeah, uh, like we're fortunate with that but I, I gotta tell you something when this happened uh, everybody you know had reached out to me and I've reached out to people as well uh, I know that the uh, U.S. Marshals with their fugitive task force uh, that they have, the Eastern Panhandle uh, Drug Task Force, uh, the, the Marshals, State Police especially, uh, Sheriff's Department, Sheriff Nathan Harmon, thank you, KC with Morgan County. And uh, also I reached across state lines. Uh, I spoke to my uh, very, very close friend forever, uh, Lenny Milholland with Frederick County Sheriff's Department as well because there were ties uh, with this individual uh, all over the tri-state yeah. area. yeah. So uh, everybody felt what what I felt, and uh, they were all, "Hey, what can we do? You know, this is what we can do. This is what we'll do." And uh, my own department, uh, they put it on high alert. And on the uh, Marshals Mountain State Fugitive Task Force, I believe I have five members that are a part of that, and all all of them came out. And the work that they did, and the work that my uniform division did in putting this together, and finding out, and putting out every lead, checking every lead, doing everything. I, I'm, I'm just amazed by them. It was phenomenal. Absolutely. And it was just great work. And, uh, you know, I know I'd asked them, you know, you all up on this. Yeah, yeah. We're up on this boss. I well, said, we got this. That's it's scary. I mean, I'm sure as a, you know, an officer yourself, you can put yourself in the shoes of that patrolman, you know, in that situation, kind of how it all transpired. I mean, even with the story of the, um, officer in Baltimore City a couple of days ago that was just sitting in her patrol car and somebody came up and you know shot her uh, out of nowhere I mean it's 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 in you guys 
it, what you guys do every day is is amazing, and putting yourself you know on the line every day is is amazing. Oh, you, you're too kind, but I appreciate it. But you you do echo correct words. Sometimes uh, this job is inherently very dangerous, uh, very dangerous indeed. And sometimes we, by no other means, we put ourselves in harm's way because that's what we swore to do. We swore to uphold the law and to protect the citizens of of our communities, and that's what we're going to do. But when it happens to one of our own, uh, you can't believe the family and the brotherhood and sisterhood that comes out trying to help in every way that they possibly can. And I made sure that uh, Ethan knew that and he, he was aware of what was going on. And I told him there when I got notified of the arrest, I said, we got him. I said, they got him down in Charlestown. And I said, both both suspects are under arrest. And he was he was pleased by that. Yeah. But, I, but I think he was even more pleased on how close everybody came together to help i think people who are in public service need to hear that because this very well could have been you know a funeral with honors Mm -hmm. you know with a lot of local law enforcement coming out to pay honor to him fortunately he's recovering but for him to see how much everyone mobilized to support him and your department is is astounding absolutely i mean i had some great work from my detectives great work from patrol uh lieutenant uh, adam allball i gotta give a shout out to he did some great work uh, on this case and uh, Mike Ulrich with the U.S. Marshals also. I mean, you know, he knew how important this was to us. And uh, uh, he put it on top priority. It was the first thing on his desk. And uh, their uh, United States Marshal even echoes the same words. When it happens to one of our own, it is a priority. So I was glad that it ended uh, as it did. And I'm glad that individual uh, is under arrest. And I'm, I'm glad to see it uh, proceeding in the court as it should. Absolutely. And that was uh, Martinsburg Chief of Police, George Swartwood. Uh, running down the the story basically of um, how it all happened one of his patrol officers got injured and uh, could have been a lot worse and then area law enforcement and the U.S. Marshals mobilized and uh, the main suspect is in jail without bond this morning Um, and like I said I'm going to be putting a package together for Metro News they'll probably run that um, in the next few days on uh, on their website so a quick break and then we'll be back with Michael Walton from the Eastern West Virginia Community Foundation you're listening Panhandle Live. DUI, then you need to contact Sutton and Janelle Attorneys at Law immediately. With over 70 years of combined legal experience, Sutton and Janelle customizes effective and creative strategies to ensure the most favorable outcome to your DUI case while keeping your reputation intact and not spending a fortune. Sutton and Janelle gave me the legal standing I needed to have my case dismissed. And more importantly, that saved my career. Contact Sutton and Janelle for your free DUI consultation. SuttonandJanelle.com. Taking local stories and sharing them with the four state. This is Panhandle Live with hosts Jordan Nice Warner and Marsha Kavalik. Welcome into Panhandle Live. Marsha Kavalik here with you. Jordan Nice Warner has the day off. And uh, I am joined, hopefully, on, on the phone by um, Mike, Michael Walton from the Eastern West Virginia Hello. Community Foundation. Are you there? Anyway, Michael Walton will be calling me back, hopefully, and I'll be able to hear him, and he'll be able to hear me well. <sighs> this is live radio, folks. I'm so sorry, Mike. I know you had a lot of good information to tell me. Hopefully, you'll call back. That's completely operator error. I'm going to just go on the record as saying that, but we wanted to talk about uh, some of the great youth grants they have been uh, bringing to the youth of the Panhandle, and of course, it's scholarship season, uh, so folks uh, who've got college-ready students or students who want to go into secondary 
um, you know, preparation, education beyond high school. This is the time to uh, get an application in. Uh, they've got kind of um, uh, a, a group application. They've got a lot of uh, different scholarships that they uh, represent. And uh, those scholarships are for a variety of uh, scholarship packages all the way from, oh, let's see if we can get them on again. Hey, Michael, can you hear me? Marsha? Can you hear me now? No, I cannot. How about now? Yeah, there you are. Okay. It was one button. Ah, okay. <laughs> I just learned a thing. Okay, Michael. Uh, good you, morning, the, Marsha. The floor is yours. I really appreciate you being a friend of the program and sticking around, and I, I hope we didn't lose too many listeners just now. Uh, listening to me try to push buttons. I'm sure they were waiting with bated, <laughs> bated breath. breath. What did you bait yours with? Ha <laughs> <laughs> um, ha so, so Michael well, I Watton. heard a little bit of what you were talking about sure. as far as the Eastern West Virginia Community Foundation having just finished uh, a cycle of grants that we were awarding for um, the youth and education programs. That It's like a, a bad game of, of telephone. You still there? Before we go into 2022. <laughs> ah, there we go. Hey, we lost you for just a little bit. Can you uh, repeat like the last couple phrases? <laughs> of course I can. Uh, we heard the phone ring in there and then yeah, you went out. Boy, isn't that something when it rains, it pours. Right? It's just telephone issues the whole day. Okay, so you were talking about how you just finished a round of youth uh, grants. Yep, youth and education grants. And that put us over the million dollar um, total of grant making for the year. So we wow. are thrilled to be moving into 2022 with another record year of grant making and being able to support the nonprofit organizations that are doing so much good work in the community to um, battle the pandemic, which we thought was going to be a short-term thing, but boy, it has not turned out that way. You know, if, if folks are just kind of hearing you on our airways for the, the first time during the pandemic, you guys as a lot of organizations had to really switched up um, how you, you know, doled out some of these grants and they were very much to uh, organizations that were doing work in the moment, needed work, uh, needed money to help uh, fulfill some of the community needs right then and there before some of the federal money started matriculating down. In retrospect, as you guys kind of look back, even though obviously the pandemic's not completely in the rear view, um, how did that all work out for you guys? Well, it actually worked out um, good for us. We were able to partner with United Way of the Eastern Panhandle. And between our two organizations, we awarded nearly three-quarters of a million dollars in grants and scholarships. Um, we each did a, a little over 350000 and then we also um, were able to award more. And I don't mean in scholarships. This is all in uh, COVID grants um, last year. And then... This year, we've continued that effort by building our unrestricted endowment and being able to uh, address some of those needs that were also um, truly uh, dire. Um, some of the nonprofit organizations that we serve have had so much greater demand over the last year, and that has been um, something that we are very proud that we've been able to meet. So when you talk about unrestricted funds, I mean, I, I can imagine what, what you're going to say, but how important is it to kind of have funds that are available that um, don't have a, a timeline or uh, a lot of restrictions on how to use them for community organizations who, who are seeing real-time need? Yeah, it's, it's critical. And 
um, it's one of the last things that community foundations are able to build because um, so many donors have a, a determined interest that they want to focus on. So that's great because we can do field of interest funds and education and health care and senior programs. But if we can get donations for our unrestricted funds, we're able to address changing needs as they come up in the community, whether it be a pandemic or a natural disaster or just um, some incident that really uh, was unexpected and, and a nonprofit organization is stepping up to lead the challenge, um, we're there to be able to provide funding for that. Because some of these nonprofits, we, we talk to a lot of these uh, good folks uh, that come, come through our studio throughout the year, they are so busy doing the work. Fundraising is the last thing that they want to think about. So if there's some funding mechanism that can help them, that's a huge plus. But who's donating to like this kind of unrestricted funding? Or is just this a mechanism where you've got a tiny endowment seed that has just grown through the years? It's both. We had a tiny endowment that has grown through the years. Then we got a half a million dollar gift for the unrestricted endowment last year. And we've also built a number of new funds in the last couple of years that are generating um, each of our funds uh, pays an annual administrative fee. It's 1% annually from most of the funds. The scholarship funds pay 2% because of the added administrative responsibilities of um, handling scholarships. But that admin fee covers all of our expenses at the community foundation. So we don't have to do any fundraising which is really a blessing for us because we are happy to be able to support nonprofit organizations that are um, doing the – that need the fundraising. And so that's been able to, to be a, one of the wonderful things. We've been able to work, again, with United Way. They've uh, done some great fundraising for the nonprofit organizations, and you would mentioned how difficult it is for nonprofits. They're working on their mission – delivering their services to the community, and they can't have, uh, many of them can't have their normal fundraising events. So um, we've been able to help with that, and I know that Penny and the folks at United Way have done a marvelous job as well. So Michael Walton is with us from the Eastern West Virginia Community Foundation. I know the year isn't completely over. You mentioned a little bit about, um, you know, year to date, but um, do you have any firm numbers about any of the particular funds and how much has gone out in, in those particular funds or um, from Eastern West Virginia Community Foundation in general yet, or do you have to wait until the calendar year is completely over? Well, um, I just ran the numbers, and it was $1,021,000 and change that we had uh, awarded in grants and, and scholarships this year. Wow. And one of the funds that always does amazing work in the community is the W. Randy Smith Family Fund. And Randy not only recommended grants to the the nonprofits that are doing so much work as far as human welfare and housing, but also um, he just uh, recommended a hundred thousand dollar grant, and we haven't even counted that on the total because it won't go out until next year. But that's a grant to um, help the Martinsburg Union Rescue Mission uh, transform a. a, a mostly vacant building that they have on their property into six 
transitional housing apartments for families, which is such an amazing need in this community. It's a game changer. Yeah, it is. Right now, um, you've got the rescue mission for men, you've got Bethany House for women and and children, but you don't have a place where families can be. And um, uh, Pastor Tim has done a remarkable job at the at the rescue mission, and he's got this vision to create a really wonderful space for for families who are struggling with homelessness. And these are transitional housing; they're not a permanent housing solution, but. One of the things that he's planning to do there is have a social worker and also do job training so that uh, folks who are in those transitional housing apartments can then move into permanent housing um, in a fairly short period of time. You know, it's interesting because we have Pastor Tim on once a month. And, um, you know, I was doing the whole reporter thing. You know, how long are these folks going to be allowed to stay, you know, in this transitional housing? He said as long as they need it. Yeah. Yeah, but they, I mean, that's not, it is as long as they need it, but he's going to work to get everybody the skills necessary to be able to be on their own. That's the wonderful thing. It's not just a place where they will um, be able to to, to park and stay. They're going to be working to um, move into a better situation. Which is tremendous, and I know he'll use a lot of his community partners and uh, the the neighborhood around there to boost those families up. It's exciting um, that this is that this is all happening here, and Eastern West Virginia Community Foundation, of course, has a huge part in that. Uh, I have to ask you, how are the scholarship uh, applications coming? I was talking with Karen yesterday. She's working remotely. Karen is our program manager, and anybody who is applying for a scholarship will run across her at some point during the process because um, she monitors everything that's going on. We have um, the process with a group called Award Spring, and they it, it's all online. Um, you have to sign in and create an account, and then you see all of the different things that you need to provide. But it's a very good, comprehensive um, application process. And I think she said she's got 100 that have at least started the process so far. And that um, will run. Most people will really get serious about it over the um, winter break here coming up in the next couple of weeks. So I know there are some parents out there who are probably listening and going, I haven't heard anything about this from my student. Um, I, last year, of course, the, the um, guidance counselors, uh, it was a challenge for them to be able to meet with the seniors uh, the way that they normally had been. But for someone who may be new to this area or doesn't understand uh, what this approach is, can you give us the thumbnail about what this scholarship application covers and some of the really cool scholarships and how folks can be available? Absolutely. So um, we have 44 funds, scholarship funds, that will be awarding scholarships this year. Um, a total of about $125,000 in, in scholarships will be awarded in 2022. Um, so what people can do, they can start by going to our website. It's www.ewv cf.org, so it's just the initials of the Eastern West Virginia Community Foundation. And then you can um, uh, click on the drop-down menu where it says Receive, go to Scholarships, and you can see all of the different scholarships that are available. Um, The student should then um, 
click on the apply for a scholarship, go to the award spring link, and that will then give them an opportunity to create their own um, application. And they can see what they might be eligible for. There are so many different types of programs for so many different schools. We have um, scholarships that are available for virtually every school in the Eastern Panhandle. Um, we have scholarships that are uh, being presented to students who are attending Shepherd University, WVU, out of state. It's just a wide range of the scholarship options. And one of the newest scholarships that we have, and one I love to talk about, was established by Colonel Dennis D. Barron. It's the Civil Air Patrol um, scholarship. It's for any uh, graduating senior who is actively involved in a leadership role in uh, the West Virginia wing of the Civil Air Patrol. It's a great scholarship. It's $3,750 a year, and they can reapply as long as they continue to stay active in Civil Air Patrol. It can go up to four years. So it's a, a wonderful scholarship, and we've got two super students who are per currently um, enrolled in college and um, and taking advantage of this scholarship that was set up by Colonel Barron. Michael Walton with us from the Eastern West Virginia Community Foundation. Got about a half a minute left. Can you let folks know how they can find out more information? You bet. They can um, go to the website, www.ewvcf.org, or give us a call at 304-264-0353. Michael, thank you for hanging in with me this morning and, and uh, <laughs> all the phone challenges that we had. I really appreciate you being a friend of the program. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you, Marsha. All right. Have a good holiday season. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Bye. Bye. And that was uh, Michael Walton. And that'll about do it uh, for us here at Panhandle Live. Hoppy Kerchival is up next with Talkline. You're listening to Panhandle Live on WEPM, WCST. WEPM Martinsburg and WCST Berkeley Springs, a WVRC media station. We're proud to live here, too.